0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The CDC has issued a sweeping order to stop evictions of renters during this global pandemic. The proper question might be, under what authority? Cato's Walter Olson walks through some of the legal arguments that are sure to be offered as landlords challenge this order. Before the CDC announcement uh, that we will get to, uh, what was the state of eviction moratoriums uh, in in light of this uh, pandemic at the state and local level?
1: Well, of course, eviction is a state and local legal action. Uh, it does not go on in federal courts generally. and. Uh, as part of the reaction to the pandemic, uh, of course, states generally either closed their courts for a while or sharply limited how the courts operated. And uh, part of that in a great many states was uh, either a complete moratorium on evictions or perhaps uh, moving them through a narrow window only uh, of, of certain types of them that might be allowed to go forward. So that was not too controversial because the courts were closing for all sorts of legitimate cases.
0: Right. So to understand this correctly, you understand that the eviction moratorium is because people who might wish to
1: challenge that could not have a day in court in order to do so? People who might want to conduct an eviction to the extent that it requires uh, court process uh, or or the, the tenant would have to be allowed court process to challenge the, the eviction, that couldn't go forward because the, the courts during the emergency were unable to handle that kind of business in the judgment of sometimes the courts themselves, sometimes the governors, sometimes the legislatures. But that was a kind of traditional emergency reason while you couldn't have evictions, and wasn't too controversial. Um, In addition to that, uh, some states and some cities went ahead and did what you might call policy-oriented eviction moratoriums, saying even though we're reopening the courts for a bunch of different things, uh, we think that um, uh, this should be forced to wait because incomes have been disrupted or become, because this isn't as important a category of litigation as something else. Now, Especially, I think, when that latter bunch of rationales was in the air, uh, there were a bunch of legal challenges. And uh, in at least three states, and I suspect I'm missing a bunch of them, landlords have already gone to court saying, uh, no, either under... uh, federal Constitution or under our state constitution or other law um, we deserve a day in court you can't just close the courts uh, against us because you think that we're less good litigants than the other ones that you're allowing to proceed with their cases all right so
0: t- tell me about what the federal government has done the one that grabbed headlines a couple days ago was the CDC what was what was in that order? And where are they claiming the authority to issue that order?
1: The source of authority is slender and surprising for this new CDC order. And it's not federal housing law. And... uh, I should mention that there was an earlier round of federal mortgage moratorium uh, involving properties that the federal government already had some financial leverage over because the federal government was involved in financing of them and that sort of thing. Uh, again, not too controversial because everyone knew that there was more red tape with housing where there was a federal financial angle, but this is different. Uh, this purports to control evictions of all sorts of housing, whether or not there is any federal involvement in it, uh, supports to do so nationwide, and we can get to the federalism issues, but uh, they are very substantial. And it uh, does so on a public health rationale, uh, which is not completely imaginary, because you can certainly find instances where someone who is being evicted will then double up with their sister. And you know, maybe that's a greater risk of contagion. But uh, this is uh, much, much broader than that. And it is all hinged on uh, a short and terse federal public health law, which authorizes uh, at the time the Surgeon general, now the CDC, which inherited those powers, to develop regulations uh, at its discretion to prevent the spread of communicable disease, and then gives a sample list of the sorts of things that it intends to authorize, like uh, fumigation of potentially contaminated goods, like quarantine of travelers or people arriving from abroad who might be transmitting disease uh, from state to state. And the law carefully recites, uh, as a federal law should, that it is interstate- uh, commerce, that it's going after uh, the movement of people from state to state. That law, so far as I can see, doesn't say anything about someone who is staying put in their own state. Uh, you s- begin to see the chasm between what's contemplated in this law, things like pest control and the ability to uh, make people wait out uh, quarantine periods with what is going on in this order, which is reaching into obviously entrusted, uh economic transactions, rewriting contracts uh, between people who, were, neither of whom were planning on leaving their states, and doing so with this t- very tenuous speculative uh, kind of rationale that maybe some of these people uh, would have had to move into more crowded quarters. So Lots of different problems legally, and uh you can expect it to be challenged uh, for a variety of legal grounds, some of which I'm more likely to win than others
0: to the extent I am about to be evicted, I presently have symptoms and have tested positive for coronavirus or covid nineteen. I do not plan to leave the state what's what do I argue
1: well first. I have good news, which is neither you nor your landlord, nor anyone else within 10 miles has to have the virus. Uh, this applies to people who are perfectly healthy um, and may live in states uh, where the infection rate is so low that everything is reopened. Everyone gets covered so long as their income is uh, below a certain point. You may have to argue sometimes that coronavirus has disrupted your income. You might be in the travel industry, let's say. Uh, but you don't have to argue that your family has been affected by the illness and in a more direct way, so um, you look up whether you're covered, and there are uh, there's an income threshold of around ninety nine thousand dollars, I think. Uh, there are various uh, specifications that this will. Uh, Prevent your eviction only for non-payment of rent, but that you have to make good payment, good faith payments of what you can afford. Notice that they are effectively legislating here; they are not um, simply picking a series of cases and saying this contract is unconscionable, but they are trying to rewrite the details uh, and. So you better look up all the fine print, but many people will be covered, and many people who are perfectly capable of paying uh, will find that they get some chance to uh, make an argument on this. You might have to swear out some things on, on some federal forms, but it's the, the the coverage is way overbroad if you were comparing it with what a... Uh, charitable nonprofit might do that was looking for neediest cases to help. How is this not a taking
0: from the CDC?
1: From my point of view, I think from a reasonable point of view, it is a taking, and there should be a court remedy uh, on that basis. Unfortunately, we haven't convinced the courts of that, and Cato, for one, and others also have been trying uh, in a series of cases over the years, some of them with extremely sympathetic circumstances where landlords are being Facing confiscatory regulations, landlords that have not done anything wrong, nonetheless, the courts generally say that uh, both rent control and the future of rent control that requires renewal of leases for someone that you might have wanted to reclaim the apartment from all these things uh, can be enacted, and the property has not been taken from you. You can't actually ever get it back, but they'll say it hasn't been taken from you because it's not as if the government has moved a soldier into it, so the uh, so the law starts out very unfavorable on takings, and it starts out unfavorable also on some areas like um, the contracts clause, uh, laws for the impairment of contracts, were, I think a plain direct reading should say that the landlord should win in this case. Contracts have been impaired. Um, however, that's not the way the courts see it. Uh, you can trace uh, some of the state uh, litigation uh, has already reached... A ruling, like in New York, for example, and you can trace comparable litigation to see what uh, how unsympathetic the courts are uh, toward um, e- claims of economic freedom. And unfortunately, the answer is they're quite unsympathetic. Doesn't mean that they're going to uphold this, though, uh, because even though the courts uh, are not in a very good place as far as defending property rights, uh, they do act as hall monitors on... Uh, some other constitutional issues and on administrative law issues. Now, let's start with the the basics, which is the government's not supposed to be able to do, the federal government is not supposed to be able to do something uh, without good authorization in the statute. The law has to contemplate uh, doing it. Now, right there, is where this may fall because they're going to look at that. They might say, oh, it's a pandemic. Let's all just bend over backward to, to be deferential uh, or else uh, lives might be at stake. But this is so egregious um, that uh, the counter argument is going to be, you know, you roll over for this. You got to roll over for everything. Um, you know, they're going to be able to stretch public health law to every other thing they ever want to do if you let them get away with this. So I personally think the courts are probably going to listen to that latter argument and challenge this on that basis. It's not the only basis. There is administrative law. There is the question of, uh, shouldn't you have adopted this as a regulation the way that the the Administrative Procedure Act, the federal law that prescribes to agencies how they have to adopt a regulation. And the answer is, no, you can't just dream it up and announce that afternoon. You've got to often go through notice and comment or other procedures meant to give people fair notice and let them give you a little feedback about problems. They seem to be making this up, not just as they go along, but also really quickly without that sort of consultation.
0: And even in those cases you have to have some sort of
1: underlying statutory authority for crafting that regulation. So that was the first point, which is the the flimsiness of the statutory authority. Second point is this problem of the rough-and-ready, as a complimentary way of, of putting it, the incredibly arrogant and peremptory way in which they chose to adopt this. And finally, even if they found that it was within the bounds of that short, vague statute, they still would have to decide whether the statute itself can go that far based on enumerated powers. Now, remember that the Interstate Commerce Clause has led the Supreme Court to knock down some major federal laws. That it believed were dipping too far into matters that were purely intrastate. Uh, you know, school playgrounds and and guns were, were one. There were a few others. Now, libertarians note that they're kind of inconsistent. You know, they allowed some marijuana laws that they probably should have struck down on exactly this ground. But it's not as if they have never seen the light and struck down things for lack of interstate commerce grounding. You have to see this as really, really vulnerable on that ground because they are claiming that every tenancy contract from coast to coast is part of interstate commerce. And it's just not clear to me that that's true.
0: Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.